appreciated so much. We love hearing from so many of you. And now it's time to announce the winners of our merch contest at the end of the show, so stay tuned in. But today we will be talking about all the things the U.S. Supreme Court did this week on guns, on the First Amendment, and of course on women's reproductive rights. And we'll look at the recent work of the January 6th committee in their public hearings this week and what they are doing and what the DOJ is doing with respect to January 6th. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. You know, we always start our show with a chit-chat, and I had thought um, to talk about summer because we are officially in summer. The solstice has happened. It's one of my favorite times of year. And um, I thought to ask everybody what their summer rituals were. And I almost second-guessed that just because the news this week is so heavy. But I changed my mind. I think that we should talk about the things that we do to sustain ourselves, to feel good, and to protect ourselves in even the worst of times. And when summer comes around, I always make a playlist, a summer playlist of songs that I listen to um, throughout the summer when I'm running or or doing things around the house or or for whatever reason. And the first song that I put on my playlist this year is Beyonce's Break My Soul. And I listened to that today before this podcast. And it's such an uplifting, powerful, sustaining anthem for women that I think It's exactly (laughs) the kind of thing that I need. I'm grateful for Beyonce for dropping that this week. Um, And I do think it's important for us to take care of ourselves. So what do we do during summer? Jill, what's something that you do to help mark summer uh, that all of us can do to help us sustain ourselves in these tough times? Mine is not sustaining. Mine is I move my winter clothes out of my closet and put the summer clothes in. (laughs) You wait that long? I do. Well, in Chicago... We had Touché. winter weather. I mean, what can yeah. I tell you? But I, I also start gardening, and that gives me so much joy. Um, I have mostly a perennial garden, so it happens by itself. It's magic. But I leave spaces to add the color that only perennial, uh, only annuals can bring. And even today, just because I was so depressed, I said, I have to take a break. And I ran out, and I got some petunias in red and white to brighten a particular spot in my garden that has a little bit of sun. Mostly it's shady. So that's what I did to make myself happy today was get some flowers. That's great. Barb, how about you? You know, uh, similar to Jill, I really like getting outside. Um, the weather in the, the summer in Michigan is fabulous, but it's really short. And so, you know, if you blink, you could miss it. So I really try to get out and embrace summer. Um, my husband and I like to bike down to a little community pool in the morning and go for a swim to start the day. That's always great. Even today, as busy as it's been with the really heartbreaking news, I found a little time to slip away to go for a little walk. We've got a little nature area near my house so I could walk and enjoy some nature and just try to, you know, uh, let go for a minute. It's, uh, I think, just so rejuvenating to spend a little bit of time outdoors, especially when the weather's nice. My office becomes my front porch frequently in the summertime, you know, with my laptop, I'd love to just sit out there and soak in the summer. And Joyce? Well, it's 95 degrees here in Alabama today. Feels like 105. So our summer ritual involves moving inside. Um, we won't do anything outside for the rest of the summer. No, I'm kidding. But it, it feels really hot and horrible today. And I noticed that my husband and one of my kids, we have these big outdoor fans that are rechargeable that you can use to blow mist or even put behind a big block of ice to cool things off. They've actually resorted to bringing those inside and putting them in their rooms in addition to air conditioning. So I think um, for now, our summer ritual is going to be hunkering down in the air conditioning and finding things to do indoors. (laughs) And are the chickens okay? You know, the chickens are surprisingly good. The fans are supposed to be for the chickens, so I'm going to have to go fight to get them back. But we have these really great, they're like misters. You um, get a hose and you just sort of screw it in and turn the water on low and it sprays mist out. And actually the dogs and I like that as, as much as the chickens. Well, this morning, as all of our listeners know by now, the Supreme Court finally handed down its opinion in Dobbs, the Mississippi abortion case, and they reversed Roe. 
we were all prepared for that, but I think it feels even worse than I expected that it would feel. Somehow it seems different and horrible, and and that wound is very fresh right now, but we're just going to dig right in and try to have some reasoned takes to help you understand the law and where it's going, despite the emotion of the moment. You know, we're not, and, and you're not, the only people that are feeling emotional about this. It was clear to me that the dissenting justices actually had some level of emotion about this case because typically justices dissent and they say, you know, with respect, I dissent. In this case, they didn't. In this case, the three dissenters closed the opinion by saying, with sorrow, with sorrow for this court, but more for the many millions of American women who have today lost a fundamental constitutional protection, we dissent. So you'll be forgiven for being emotional and angry and frustrated and frightened by this decision. But now it's time for us to pick up and think about it and decide what we're going to do about it because it will not keep us down. It will not turn us into second-class citizens. And we start there, I guess, Jill, we need to understand the holding in Dobbs. So with precision, can you tell us what the court ruled in this case? I'm willing to bet that everyone listening to us right now already knows exactly what it is. And in the most simple language, it took away a right that women have had, that anyone who could get pregnant has had for 50 years. Uh, And they said there is no constitutional basis for a right to have an abortion. It is the first time that a right was granted and then taken away. And It wasn't a surprise, of course. We saw all the warning signs with the Texas abortion law and how they handled that, with how they handled the arguments, with just the fact that they took it. If they hadn't intended to overturn it, they wouldn't have taken the case. So basically, it takes away a fundamental right and makes women second-class citizens. For me, it's time for the Equal Rights Amendment we have to be put into the Constitution in no uncertain terms. And that's what it means to me. It's a loss of a right that I didn't have when I was born, when I was in college, when I was in law school, because Roe was decided after I was already a lawyer. So I know exactly what it means to not have this right. And I am sorry for all of the women and my nieces um, who have lost a right to control their own bodies, to control their own careers. And that's a long answer to what the holding is because the holding is very simple. It says- I think it's a perfect answer. You know, the Supreme Court doesn't just take away the right. They then, I think, deliver what sort of the, the parting slap. They say, and it's now up to the states. So you're at the- whim of whatever state legislature happens to exist in your state at this moment. I'm really curious about everyone's reactions to the case. Jill, you've shared yours a little bit. Barb, what? how do you react to this holding? Yeah, you know, like you, Joyce, I think that we knew it was coming because we saw the leak, but I, I can't tell you how profoundly sad I feel. It's um, it's such a disappointment in who I thought America was. It's It's kind of the same feeling I felt when Donald Trump got elected president, I suppose. (laughs) It's, wow, really? This is really happening. You know, for years we heard that if, you know, uh, conservatives controlled the court, this would happen. And, you know, maybe I was just telling myself what I wanted to hear, but I thought that at least some of these justices would have some integrity and follow stare decisis. But in fact, uh, when given the opportunity to use rank power, they have done it. And it's um, it's really disappointing in a lot of ways. Um, and, and just profound sadness. Um, and I know at some point I need to figure out, okay, now what? You know, assess your options and move on. I'm not quite ready to do that yet, but um, I think I need to mourn the loss of this right. For You know, it's, it's a loss to all Americans. It isn't just, you know, the women who might be affected by this. It makes all of us um, a less free society. And so uh, I'm mourning the loss. Barb, I I think you said something so smart in in that that I just want to echo it, this notion that today is sort of for grieving. Today is a hard day. 
Today is a day where I think we should let ourselves feel sad. My immediate reaction was to call up two of my really close friends and say, hey, do you guys have time to get a drink tonight? Because we want to be around the people that we love. But I think you're also right to say that we have work ahead of us. We have work that we are very capable of doing, and, and none of us will take this for long. So I just wanted to echo what you were saying. Kim, tell us about your reaction. Yeah, I think that's an important thing, not just um, the grieving, but also the fellowship, uh, the support in this moment, because it is profound. I, by sheer coincidence, am in Boston as I'm recording this because I was in town for an event at my alma mater, uh, Boston University School of Law. I hadn't been there, you guys, in more than 20 years. And just walking into that building, I felt very emotional because that's the building in which I remember the class where we learned about Roe. And we learned about Casey, um, which at that time in 1995 had only existed for a couple of years. And so in the same breath that we're learning about this substantive due process right that women have to autonomy in their own bodies, we're also learning how it can be scaled back, how it can be contained, how it can be limited in Casey in itself, but it still existed, even though that was an important thing to learn as a law student. Roe v. Wade, to me, felt like it was like Marbury v. Madison. It was something that would always exist, right? So being back in that building, in the room, in the, in the building, um, on the day that it was ended, was very emotional. But luckily I was there for an event um, that was hosted by the Ludi A. Lytle Black Women Law Faculty Writing Workshop. So I was in a room full of black women. And not only was there a fellowship in that, in a way that I never experienced when I was a law student. Um, these are black women faculty from around the country. But there was a clear-eyed understanding of exactly what it meant for all women, but particularly what it meant for marginalized women, disenfranchised women. We know that black women face pregnancy complications that threaten their lives at a three- to four-fold uh, level of other people. We know that they're often the least able to access abortions and will be even less able to access abortions. So everything, I feel like every decision, every decision that the Supreme Court issued this week somehow falls disproportionately on our most marginalized. But we were able to see that. We were able to talk about it. And as hard as it was, that really did help. That really helped crystallize how important this is. Um, and what the road ahead is. And yes, there were some choice words said in that room. I have to tell you about Justice Thomas's concurrence, which essentially said there should be no substantive due process ever for anything. And so despite what the majority said that, oh, no, we're not going beyond. We're just talking about abortion. We're not talking about other substantive due process. Clarence Thomas is like, yes, we are. So, you know, he's at least he's telling it plainly. But I think we need to be very clear eyed uh, and focused about what this means for everyone, but particularly the folks who are most vulnerable in this country. Well, Kim, as long as you raise Justice Thomas's concurrence, let's talk about that for a second, because there's some suggestion in the majority opinion, you know, nothing to look at here, no other rights are at risk. And then Clarence Thomas jumps on board and says, oh, no, absolutely not, right? We should be challenging, or you should be challenging Griswold versus Connecticut and, and other cases. What did you make of that and his concurrence? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, he told the quiet part out loud uh, in his concurrence and said that he left up to him. All of those things would be up for grabs. He sees no substantive due process right. He sees pro due process is only about process. You know, the fact that you need to be read your rights when you're arrested, the, the true due process. And he sees no substantive, substantive due process, which means there are rights that we have, even if the founders did not specifically list them in the Constitution. He doesn't see that. And in the dissent, the dissenting justices make clear that, okay, you realize that this means everything. This means the right to contraception. That's based on the same um, principle that the right to abortion was based on. We're talking about the right to marry and to have intimacy in your personal relationships like that what was uh, Obergefell, the same-sex marriage decision, was based upon. The dissenters talked about loving, the interracial marriage um, uh, ruling 
that was based in part on substantive due process. Um, talking about Griswold, uh, the right to to uh, privacy within your home. I mean, all of these rights that we take for granted as a nation that don't just affect women, that affect everybody. If the same rationale is applied to them, it's hard for me to see. I, I'm with the dissenters. It's hard for me to see legally how you make that distinction without just, other than just saying, oh, we're distinguishing it. Um, so I'm worried about all of those things. Um, I, I think that this is a real problem. And I will take Justice Thomas at, at his word. Hey, Jill, I'm curious about your take on that, because the majority is suggesting that this doesn't go any further than abortion. Why shouldn't we take them at their word? It's it's the law. It's precedent. Are you as worried as Kim is? I am definitely as worried as Kim is. And as I said, I've lived through the era when some of this wasn't a right. And just in case people don't quite understand, Kim just referred to Griswold, That's a case that denied married couples the right to have uh, contraceptives in their own home for their own private use. I mean, just imagine a world in which a state could bar that and the court would uphold it. To me, Justice Thomas was actually issuing an invitation saying, come on, guys, find a way to challenge these other laws because I'm ready. And so, of course, I'm taking him at his word just as much. He specifically said these things must be considered because there's really no substantive due process at all for anybody. And I think that we need to worry about it. It's not just the right to abortion. Um, I heard uh, Jonathan Capehart this morning talking about he never realized how much his rights to same-sex marriage depended on my right to have an abortion. And it's true. It could all be in jeopardy. So I think that this is an issue that must concern every American citizen. This is not just an issue about abortion. And, uh, you know, it's been a bad week in terms of the court in general. So (laughs) there are a lot of things for us to talk about in terms of the court and what its future is. And with the Six members having many really young ones who could serve for another 30 years. That's my entire lifetime. Um, and, and many of our listeners' entire lifetime. So we need to get active, and there's nothing we can do about who's on the court now except possibly change how many people are on the court So, Barb, let's talk about the dissent. We've talked majority opinion. We've talked about the concurrences to some extent. But let's talk about what's in the dissent and whether it gives us any hope for the future. Yeah, well, as we've discussed before, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg used to say that dissents uh, are not written for the moment. They're written for the future. Um, In this one, they spend a lot of pages really excoriating the majority uh, as you say, it says, you know, it's not with respect, but with sorrow. And it's, uh, it, it, it doesn't pull any punches. It says that power, not reason, is now the currency of this court's decision-making. Woo, that is some pretty powerful stuff. It spends a lot of the opinion walking through why the court's majority opinion violates the normal rules about stare decisis. There are certain factors that courts are supposed to consider when deciding whether to overrule precedent, things like whether there's been a change in the facts or the law, whether people have relied on the decision, whether the decision is inconsistent with law that has come up around it, and whether it has proved workable in practice. And the court, the, the dissenting justices go through it one by one and say all of those cut in favor of upholding Roe, not overturning it. Uh, and, you know, they all love to trot out the majority and, and those who favor over overruling Roe. They all love to trot out Brown versus the Board of Education and say, see, see, I bet you progressives all like that. They overturned Plessy versus Ferguson uh, that talked about um, separate but equal. You thought you thought overturning precedent was good then, didn't you? Yes, because if you looked at those principles, it violated those principles. They produced studies about the effect that separate but equal had on students. And it was incredibly damaging to the self-esteem of the black students who were subjected to that. And it was that change in view of the facts that caused them to reconsider their decision. Here, nothing's changed other than the makeup of the court. 
And I think one of the things that's very meaningful that I hope will be that one that maybe is written for the ages is this idea where they talk about how flawed this logic is. And they say, Joyce, I know you've raised this point before. Um, Well, basically they rely on the fact that because the laws in 1868, when the 14th Amendment was, was passed, deprived women of any control over their bodies, the majority approved states doing so today. There you go. Uh, if th- those laws prevented women from charting the course of their own lives, then states can do the same thing again. And, and that, to me, is the, the lie of uh, originalism and textualism. It is all just a reverse-engineered method for uh, preserving traditional values. Um, and so I, I guess uh, the only hope you can find in there is um, that there is you know, language about why a right to an abortion is so important to uh, to all of us, um, it, it's not just about um, it, you know ending an unwanted pregnancy. It's also about and not not having forced birth. Um, you know the idea that you can uh, deliver a, a, a newborn baby anonymously to a safe haven doesn't really solve the problem. If you have had to uh, carry a birth to term, it doesn't solve the problem of high risk um, pregnancies that although maybe not life-risking, can really lead to a lot of complications. And so I am hopeful that maybe um, the day will come when uh, the three who are in the minority today are once again in the majority. I'm so sad about this opinion for so many reasons, but you talk about one of the most important ones, the toll that it inflicts upon women. And, you know, I'm reminded of this conversation that I had with a a local doctor, an, an older man who's conservative, who was concerned that the techniques that are used for abortion are also life-saving techniques that can be used in in, um, some cases involving miscarriage or or stillbirth to avoid sepsis and that there are problems with ectopic pregnancy. And I wonder what happens when we start to see a death toll in America, when we start to see the human cost of Dobbs, which will be counted in women's lives, and whether that might not in a really tragic way cause some reconsideration in state legislatures who now hold the keys to the kingdom for women's lives, but whether that might make them reconsider some of these really heinous measures that prohibit abortion in all circumstances. To extend on what you're saying, Joyce, nowadays a lot of medical schools are not teaching those life-saving measures so that even if your life were at risk and could fall within the Mississippi law, there may not be a doctor who knows how to perform the procedure. And so you may die because of that. We now have fewer rights than guns. So speaking of guns, the Supreme Court on Thursday did some serious damage to the protections that New York had in place. They struck down a New York handgun licensing law that required New Yorkers who want to carry a handgun in public to show a special need to defend themselves, not just a generalized need, but a special need. It was a 6-3 ruling as expected. Heller had allowed guns at home. This case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, allows carrying outside the home without proof of any special needs. Barb, tell us what the majority said and talk about whether there are restrictions on licensing allowed even now. Yeah, so the court struck down a New York law that required people to get a license before they could conceal carry a a gun in New York. And to get a license, you had to show a good reason. And so Most states are what are referred to as shall-issue states. Anybody who applies for a license gets one. The the board, the sheriff, whoever it is, shall issue unless the person has some uh, reason not to, like a mental health issue. Uh, But New York and a half dozen other states were may-issue states, which was the person who applied for the permit had to show a special need why they needed it. Uh, You know, someone has threatened to kill me. I carry... uh, Uh, large quantities of money to a safe every night, whatever it is, to get that permission. And what the court held is 
that that is an undue restriction on the Second Amendment right to not just keep, but bear arms. And so, as you mentioned, the Heller case decided about 10 years ago said that uh, people had a right, a personal right, an individual right to possess a gun in their home. Uh, This one now went a step further to say that um, you can't have this restrictive regime because there's also a Second Amendment right to bear, not just keep, but bear arms, which means, means carrying it around with you when you are outside the home. Now, I think, Jill, there is still room for some restrictions. They do say, as mentioned in Heller, that the Second Amendment, like all rights, is not absolute. It does not give a right to possess any kind of gun whatsoever for any purpose whatsoever in any manner whatsoever. But now states are going to be left to figure out what that is. Sensitive places, I think, are still contemplated if they wanted to say you can't carry some in a school, for example, or in a church or a hospital or a government building or something like that. Perhaps they can do that. But in New York now, um, you know, when you're out in a traffic jam or in the park or walking anywhere, uh, it is quite likely that uh, someone without a license um, will uh, be able to carry a gun um, and you'll never know who they are because they're able to conceal it. Right. Well, and it may not be without a license. It's just that they will automatically get the license. It will be a shall issue without any proof of a special need. I, I think it was the special need that we focused on. And, and Joyce, is there any hope set forth in the dissent? Do we think the dissent could become a majority someday or that there's some hope that there's a way around this? So this dissent is likely Justice Breyer's swan song, one of the last powerful opinions that he'll write before leaving the bench. And in many ways, it's a plea to the country to wake up to the threat of gun violence. I want to read just one paragraph that I think gives a flavor of his view in this dissent. He says, Many states have tried to address some of the dangers of gun violence just described. He talks, for instance, about Uvalde and Buffalo. By passing laws that limit, in various ways, who may purchase, carry, or use firearms of different kinds. The court today severely burdens states' efforts to do so. It invokes the Second Amendment to strike down a New York law regulating the public carriage of concealed handguns. In my view, that decision rests upon several serious mistakes. And so he talks about uh, some possible flaws in the majority opinion. But to speak to your question, Jill, whether the legal reasoning here has force that could move us into a different place, the answer I think most likely is no. In sort of an ironic twist, Breyer accepts Heller, which is the District of Columbia case, the 2008 case with its sort of crazy grammatical contortions that somehow turned the Second Amendment language about a well-ordered militia into an individual right to possess a firearm in, in one's own home. And the irony of that is that Breyer accepts that arguably really bad precedent, right? We're talking about precedent that engages in an almost deliberate, aggressive, in-your-face misreading of the language of the Second Amendment. And he says, but, but we reach a different result here in Bruin even after the Heller decision. Perhaps an interesting approach to take would have been to gone back to Heller and to talk about the deficiencies in that case. But of course, Justice Breyer and and this uh, minority in dissent, which has profound respect for American jurisprudence, for the rule of law, for stare decisis, accepted Heller as precedent and moved forward from there. Unfortunately, I don't think that there's a lot of room for us to move forward after Bruin. That's pretty depressing, um, and it's it's worth noting. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's been yeah, well, a depressing true, week at the so. court, right? I mean, what can we say that's good? This is a, a, in many ways, a profoundly dangerous court for all of our safety. Exactly, and and you mentioned that Justice Breyer wrote this uh, dissent. He also wrote the dissent in Dobbs, so he's had quite a week as his term, you know, as soon with the final few that are left, um, he, he's going out with a real uh, legacy uh, in these two dissents. And Kim, talk about whether you think this is 
overly broad or whether the specific language of the concurring opinion gives you any optimism about it not eliminating all sensible gun restrictions. Jill, I have no optimism this week. Oh, no. Listen, Please. no, but listen, but listen. So we just, you know, we talked about Dobbs and abortion and the fact that the court doesn't want to extend a, a, a right that isn't, wasn't explicitly laid out by the founders you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, in this case, this is a right that was very explicitly laid out by the founders, right? They said a well-regulated militia being necessary and already in Heller, this court was like, eh, you know, we don't like that part. So we're going to basically, for all intents and purposes, cut that out so that that no longer matters. No, no. We think it applies to everybody, not just the well-regulated militia. You know, much less regulated everyday people in their homes to protect themselves first because everybody has the right to protect themselves, right? Well, I read the Second Amendment again, and I didn't say see anything about self-protection in the Second Amendment, but Heller put it there, so okay, we had to accept that. Now in extending Heller outside of the home and saying, okay, these laws that essentially make people who want to take these guns outside the home explain why they need it for self-protection. Well, no, no, you shouldn't have to explain what you need it for. That's unconstitutional. Well, what is it? Is it self-protection or is it not? It wasn't in the original text, but you wrote it in and now you're writing it back out. This is what is happening. You know, when I went to law school, we we read these we read these amendments. We looked at the text of the Constitution. The job of a justice is to interpret the Constitution and the laws. And the inconsistency in this week alone, as somebody who has studied law, as someone who has practiced law, as someone who has covered the Supreme Court, baffles me. I have no idea what the grounding principle is for this conservative majority on a court. So can I say they won't turn around and look at whatever gun regulation is it? Well, no, no, that doesn't, you know, we don't think that that is what the founders wanted. Well, make up your mind. I think <laughs> you could apply. Uh, sorry to interrupt. I, I yeah. just say, I think, Kim, to, to your point, I, you could apply the same language that Breyer used in his Dobbs dissent yes. right here, which was power, not reason, is the new currency of the court's decision-making. And the dissent in Dobbs pointed out. Line. And the dissent in Dobbs pointed out, you can't have it both ways. Which one is it? And that's exactly what I think in reading this opinion, too. So, no, I, I just can't even find a guiding principle here. Okay, so let's try to find something a little more optimistic, which is, uh, I know it's hard this week, but <laughs> this decision comes less than six weeks after a gunman killed 10 black people at a Buffalo supermarket. Less than a month after 21 people, including 19 children and two teachers, were shot to death at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. So it was also issued on the same day as the Senate, in a rare bipartisan vote of 65 to 33, passed a bill to address the gun violence. It's already been passed by the House and is now on its way to be signed by President Biden. What is in that bill? What protections yeah. will we get? I mean, it very well may already be law by the time this podcast drops because we yes. know that the president fully uh, supports it. So the bill, again, I hate to, I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm Eeyore in this episode because <laughs> my first thought is the bill doesn't do much, okay? It does the very least, but it's a bill. It's the first gun uh, safety bill that we've had out of this Congress in a long Long Almost 30 time. years. Yeah, in a very long time. So what it does is it, it uh, includes some enhanced background checks that they're focused on younger people seeking to uh, purchase a gun um, uh, that can consider a lot of things, including uh, juvenile criminal records and mental health history. Um, one thing that I think is very good is that it closes the so-called boyfriend loophole. So generally speaking, the law um, requires uh, help. The law as it stands now, you can keep guns out of the hands of known domestic abusers if they live with the victim, if they are married to the victim, or if they share a child with the victim, this extends it to that, uh, beyond that. And we know that the majority, not I don't know if it's a majority, but a whole, whole lot 
of domestic abuse and domestic fatalities are conducted with a handgun. Um, And so that's a really important measure. It does something with the red flag laws. It incentivizes states to pass red flag laws. I personally think that that's useless. The states that want red flag laws already have them. There is no stick on this. There's only a carrot. Um, and, you know, I, I just don't they see that as doing anything. Uh, and there's some funding for mental health and school safety. Again, I don't think hardening schools is the issue. And uh, if you look at the research, as we already mentioned in past podcasts, people who suffer actual mental health problems are, tend to be less likely to be violent, not more. So I'm not sure that does anything. But I think on the uh, boyfriend loophole, one thing that I was looking at after this case dropped, looking at the violence policy center. And again, I know I focus a lot on black women, but I report on that a lot. And it's important. Like most things, this affects black women. The most black women were murdered at a rate of nearly three times uh, white women. And most of the time it's by a someone who knows them, often a domestic partner, and it's usually with a firearm. So I do think that that part of this law is an important thing for everyone, particularly most vulnerable people. It's very rare that these uh, homicides take place in commission of another crime, another felony. I think that's important because we see the Supreme Court talking about, you know, Alito's like, oh, well, if you live in New York City, you should be able to take a gun with you because New York's a dangerous place and it's crimey and ah, you have to protect yourself. That's not usually when shootings happen. Shootings happen the vast majority of the time. The victim is known to the perpetrator and it's targeted. It's not as part of a robbery. It's not as part of something else. It's their targeted attacks. So that's a fallacy. Um, but hopefully that that gets to it, you know, unless at some point the Supreme Court strikes this law down. So, Barb, in the meantime, the District of Columbia and Rhode Island have passed restrictions that go beyond this federal law. They've restricted high-capacity magazines that contain more than 10 rounds. And it's not in the federal bill, although I really would have liked to have seen that because I think that would have made a big difference. I don't understand why the gun lobby opposes it. But what doesn't the law do, the federal law, that you would have wanted done? Yeah, first and foremost, Jill, I think um, banning assault weapons, uh, you know, these semi-automatic AR-15s, they're weapons of war, and same with the high-capacity magazines, which I know you frequently cite as a way to reduce gun violence. These two are just such no-brainers. There is no purpose for these weapons and magazines other than to kill a lot of people really fast. Uh, there are advocates for protection uh, for, for gun ownership. There are advocates for hunting and sport. The only purpose for these weapons is to kill people uh, and to kill them fast and to kill them really well. Um, and so I think ending that is just such a no-brainer. And the only thing I can think of that stops that from happening is the gun industry and the NRA, which pushes it. Um, and we've seen this, you know, really bizarre fetishization of these assault weapons. We've got this candidate for governor um, who is uh, putting an ad up where he is, you know, shooting Republicans in name only. We see these members of Congress posing in their holiday cards with their the whole family, including the young children, are holding them up. It's a very weird thing. And I think it has become part of the whole white supremacy identity in some way. And it's really dangerous for our country. And um, I would like to have seen that. Now, I won't, I won't be quite the ER Kim is because I do think there is value in progress. Um, and for years, we couldn't get anything done at all. And so I do applaud Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, who I know has tried really hard to make sure we got some progress here. So it's something. It's a start. Uh, politics is the art of the possible and um, uh, compromise. And so I think getting this done is better than nothing and it's a good start. But that's what I'd really like to see and I think is necessary to make a meaningful difference in reducing gun violence. Just so no one flames us, it was also uh, Senator John Cornyn of Texas as well. Yes, because it was bipartisan, and that's what's so important about this. I remember when Congress was always doing bipartisan things, and I don't see compromise as a dirty word. Uh, So I agree with you, Barb, that it's not everything I would have liked But a step forward is still a step forward, and I celebrate that. And one last question, Joyce, which is, 
if the law that Barb and I would like to see, which would include banning assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, could pass, if it did pass, would the Bruin opinion make them unconstitutional? So the devil is always in the details with these things, but by and large, the path forward after Bruin, the sort of two areas where states have the best chance of passing laws and not running afoul of the Supreme Court would be provisions that regulate who can have firearms and provisions that regulate where you can have a firearm. Are there some specific places that we can protect more? You know, in Bruin, the court says, you can't protect all of Manhattan, but maybe perhaps you can find particularly dangerous places to um, protect. Although I, I will say I'm a little bit cynical on this because in Alabama, after our open carry laws passed, the places that were quick to protect themselves were government offices. Everything from police stations to, you know, the, the Capitol to the State House, um, those were the places where you were no longer permitted to carry a gun even after the state became open carry. So look, I actually have an answer on why we haven't been able to pass this very logical sort of restriction that would restrict high-capacity magazines that permit people to just, you know, thump the clip into their gun and suddenly you can shoot 100 rounds in a minute, right? That's what makes people like the shooter at Uvalde, although there are a lot of issues that are emerging regarding the details of that shooting, but that's what makes it more difficult for law enforcement to go after perpetrators in that situation. But if you're talking about an AR-15, the standard clip is a 30-round clip. So if you ban magazines with that capacity of 30 rounds in them, you're in essence uh, engendering a de facto ban on AR-15s. And that's why there's been a lot of hostility among gun manufacturers and people who would like to have an AR-15 in their home to enacting measures like that. I think that that resistance continues. I think Bruin makes it easier in some ways to oppose measures like that. But I was interested listening to New York Governor Kathy Hockle this morning, who said that they had been spending some time with some of the, the big brains in this area and that they were prepared to propose in their legislature a new package of measures that would help to keep their communities safer. And I suspect that there are ways, if they're very carefully tailored to the concerns articulated by the Bruin majority, that might pass muster. I just don't see, and, and very unfortunately, because I think it's such an easy common sense measure, I don't see an end to these high-capacity magazines in the near future. So before we leave the Supreme Court, there was one other major decision this week um, that involved the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Kim, do you want to just talk about what that meant? Yeah, it feels like so long ago now because it happened on Monday or Tuesday. Um, so, yes, there was a case that involved uh, Maine a Maine law which allowed people who lived in far-flung parts of the state to be given um, funding, taxpayer funds, to send their kids to private school if no public school is available. But it prohibited those parents from choosing a religious school because it's taxpayer funds. And the state said, well, that would violate the Establishment Clause. Not only did the U.S. Supreme Court say, no, no, that does not violate the Establishment Clause, but that failing to allow parents to take that money and send their kids to a religious school would violate the free exercise clause. In fact, they went beyond that and said it would be discrimination against religion. Now, again, in law school, we learned that there are many parts of the First Amendment. And when some of those uh, principles butt up against each other, and they often do, what we learn is that the constitutional analysis is supposed to allow for something called play in the joints. You're supposed to reach some sort of compromise that protects both of those ideals as much as you can, and in the interest of preserving what is actually written in the Constitution about making no law uh, that establishes uh, regarding the establishment of a religion. And so to me, this is again the Supreme Court taking it upon itself to say, no, we don't like that part of the First Amendment, but we really like this free exercise part. We want people to be able to be religious 
in, in more spaces, not fewer. And yeah, even if it's taxpayer money, you know, that's okay. Uh, I'm not sure the founders would see it that way, but then again, it's just one more case that makes all of my years of studying and practicing and talking about the law uh, feel a lot less sure um, because I'm never sure what this U.S. Supreme Court is going to do. Well, to just end this segment on a happier note, you're right, of course, but the state of Maine has actually found a way around the decision, and they've passed a law that says no school that discriminates on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation may receive state funds. And both of the plaintiffs in this case have now rejected federal funds because they both discriminate on those grounds. So there is a sort of happy ending here that there is a way around this terrible decision. And I say that as someone who does not say under God when I pledge allegiance because it wasn't part of the pledge when I was in school in grade school. And I feel strongly about separating church and state. So I'm happy for Maine taking this extra action. I just got the Well, we had two more hearings this week regarding the January 6th insurrection. And I want to talk briefly about each of those because so much happened in each one of those. You know, every time we have these hearings, I think, well, that one was was the best one so far. And then we have another one and they're amazing. Um, Kim, can you remind us what we heard on Tuesday? Uh, I guess we'll call that state interference day. And, and maybe just something that, that, that st- stuck with you um, from that day's hearing. Yeah, so we heard from various state officials and election workers about this pressure campaign that came from Donald Trump and those in his inner circle um, about what they did. And it was in a, a lot of this is stuff that had been reported, not all of it, but just laying it all bare and just seeing what these state officials faced Um the pressure that they had and how they stood up to it, even when they came under tremendous attack. I think the testimony that, uh, among the testimony that stood up, uh, stood out to me most were folks like Arizona House Speaker Rusty Boward, who is the conservative's conservative when it comes to Republican. He's someone who voted for Trump proudly. Um, he is a, a Republican stalwart, but he testified how he was pressured to change the results of Arizona's election from uh, from Joe Biden to Donald Trump. And he said, I will not break my oath. He stood up to this and received a tremendous amount of backlash for it. And it just showed how Republicans were, were able to, were willing to go against even their most ardent supporters in this. There was also just the really, really gripping testimony from election workers in Georgia, and particularly that of Shay Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman, called, she's known as Lady Ruby Freeman, and it's uh, understandable why, based on both of their testimony. These were women who just wanted to help administer this election because they thought voting was so important. And they took that job and they took it seriously and they were attacked viciously to the point of having to leave their home. They still live in fear and they were doing this because they were trying to protect elections for everyone. So I think that not only helped the committee really establish, if that's what they're trying to do, evidence that could lead to a finding of obstruction of official proceeding, which would be a felony, but also really driving home to the American people how real this was, how dangerous it was, and how people were threatened, and how even those who are on the same side uh, as folks as Rusty Bowers were not immune to the attacks. I thought that it was really effective. Yeah, and boy, how about you know Trump and Rudy Giuliani just using innocent people as pawns in their uh, in their power quest? Um, Giuliani saying uh, he's on on uh, 
you know, they had a video of him saying, you know, as a trained prosecutor, I can tell that something very sinister is occurring here as they pass hand to hand, not unlike a vial of heroin or cocaine, uh, what must be some sort of electronic device to uh, throw the election. And, you know, she's asked what that is. And, and it turns out it, it was a ginger mint. Come on, Rudy. That's just <sighs> crazy. It is, uh, uh, but I, I I agree with you that seeing uh, just a real person, two real people, salt of the earth, election workers, they like to work just to be able to help people and help people vote, um, are just used as pawns by them in this game. Um, Jill, let's talk about Thursday. Thursday, I guess we'll call it DOJ Day. Um, and I think people largely know what happened, but can you just give us like your, your top takeaway? You know, do you think they were effective and what do you think they established? I thought they were amazingly effective. They had really powerful live testimony. You had the acting attorney general, Jeff Rosen. You had his deputy, and you had the head of the Office of Legal Counsel. And all three of them were very clear in what they thought of the fake elector program, of the uh, possibility of Jeff Clark, who was basically an environmental lawyer in the department, proposed by uh, Senator Perry to take over because he was the only one who was willing to do the dirty deed and send a letter falsely claiming that the Department of Justice had found some fraud that would justify state legislatures that were controlled by Republicans doing something that is completely illegal and unwarranted, particularly where there is no fraud, and that is to send a different slate of electors. And it was a deliberate attempt. And in both of these cases, in both um, the first hearing that we talked about with the state legislators, uh, state officials, and this one, Donald Trump was at the heart of it. Both of these hearings linked him clearly to it. Uh, and I, I do want to add one thing about Shea Moss, aside from the fact that she made me cry, um, was something that very few people seem to know is that she has filed suit um, against one of the networks and against Rudy Giuliani. And she has settled with the networks and her suit is still pending against Rudy Giuliani. I mean, people kept saying, why isn't she suing them for defamation? Well, she did and she's winning. So I think people should know that. All in all, they have created a very good narrative that says Donald Trump knew there was no fraud. Donald Trump pursued these illegal actions knowing they were, they were illegal. He was told that there was no constitutional or factual basis for it. And that, to me, is very powerful and convincing. And yeah. the numbers are showing it. We now have almost 60% of Americans thinking that the former president should be indicted. Well, speaking of criminal charges, Joyce, earlier on Thursday, we got the news that Jeffrey Clark's house had been searched by federal agents on the same day that I think it was something like nine people either received subpoenas or search warrants for electronic devices. What do you make of that? Most interesting, right, Barb? Um, I think it's important to say up front what this is not. This is not a raid. This was a search warrant executed <laughs> after federal agents went to a federal judge who agreed that there was probable cause to believe that a crime had been committed and that the search of these specific locations would yield evidence of those crimes. So I always rankle when I hear people say, yes, Wade, I noticed that you and Chuck Rosenberg did too. We all have that same reaction. Not a raid. Um, what is it? We don't know for certain. We can make some pretty good guesses. Um, it would be awfully coincidental if with everything going on, this didn't have something to do with uh, all of the, the really evil things that Jeff Clark tried to do at DOJ to manipulate what's supposed to be the crown jewel in our system of government, the rule of law in service of a president who was trying to hold on to power after losing an election. So that's my working assumption. Look, we don't know for sure. It could be that they got onto evidence of other crimes committed by Clark in the course of this or other investigations. But I think our working assumption has to be, particularly because DOJ is out serving subpoenas on people uh, in some of these states who were involved in the fake slates of electors, that DOJ is pursuing 
uh, with with some intent, with some vigor, this question of whether or not crimes were committed in connection with the effort. And they're not really fake slates of electors. They're just imposters. They're people who aren't lawful electors, who are trying to impersonate lawful electors, and whether some crime or crimes were committed in connection with that activity. Can I be petty for a minute? Please. I, I believe deeply in the rule of law, but I also believe deeply in the rule of karma. And it is worth <laughs> noting that when this very lawful uh, search warrant was executed, it was done in the pre-dawn hours requiring Mr. Clark to stand outside uh, in his uh, pajamas in front of all of his neighbors. You know, the fact that he complained about that showed how completely unsuited he was to be the attorney general because one of the first things that you learn as a prosecutor and certainly as an agent when you're planning these kinds of operations is you have to keep everybody safe. You have to keep the agents safe, but you also have to keep the people whose, whose homes or whose premises are being searched safe. And so the first thing that you do is take them out of the premises so that you can make sure that there's no threat to anyone. The fact that he didn't appreciate that this was done for his protection as well as for the protection of the agents just shows how how really poorly informed he is about how any of this works. Enjoy awesome. The pajama doctrine. Yeah, there you go. He was also <laughs> very doctrine. Un- he was also very unhappy that they knocked loudly. Yeah, it was a loud <laughs> knock. Wow. Yeah, how, how about, how about well, he would have complained more if it was a yeah. no knock, right? Knocked <laughs> 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 loudly. Um, well, before we leave this topic, can I just say, I don't know if any of you have any favorite observations from these hearings or these videos or any of the personalities. It's all fascinating just from a people watching perspective. But I have to give the Room Raider Award to um, Eric Hirschman, who's got that weird panda <laughs> mural. And then he's got yes. this baseball bat that says justice. And it's, what is it, like bathroom fixtures it's resting on? It's the weirdest thing. <laughs> That guy's hilarious, by the way. He's he can't stop himself from swearing all the time, and he is so glib um, about you know the advice he gave to John Eastman and others. Any other favorite observations from the hearings? You know, I didn't love him during impeachment. I'll just go on record as saying that, um, and I'm I'm not a huge fan here, although he was colorful. But what I really liked um, was was more notional. It was this idea that you really can stand up to the bully. And so we see this moment where the the folks at DOJ, where, where Rosen and Donahue and Engel finally decide that even for them, this has gone on for too long and what Trump wants to do is a bridge too far. And they stand up to him and they say, you know, if you put Jeffrey Clark, who is unqualified and poorly suited in place as attorney general, we will resign. And maybe people won't pay attention to us resigning, but what they will pay attention to is when over the course of the next 24 hours, everybody in the leadership at DOJ resigns. I'm told by a good friend who was a U.S. attorney in in the Trump administration that had Rich Donahue, who they all admired very much, told them what was going on, that, that this person believes that down to a man, um, mostly men and woman, that they would have resigned too. And Trump backed down. He backed down in the face of that. And that's remarkable because we all saw that little bit of the White House call log where Clark was already being referred to in the White House call logs as the acting attorney general by late in the, the afternoon. But the bully, Trump, back down in the face of strong resistance. I hope we all appreciate the lesson. You know, Zerlina Maxwell had a really interesting um, view on that. She said that um, uh, Steve Engel had the brilliant insight to make Trump pretend that it was an episode of The Apprentice. Remember, he said, who is it going to be? Jeffrey Clark or Jeffrey Rosen. And they're all sitting around his desk like the last scene of The Apprentice and you can only pick one and one of them has to get fired. And he 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 explains like, what's that going to look like? You're going you're the one who's going to look weak yeah, under, under the Clark scenario. Um, and look at him. He can't even find his way to the FBI. Would Chris Ray even know who he is? He's weak. You like central casting. Don't pick him. He's an environmental lawyer. We're Republicans. We hate environmental lawyers. Uh, and so ultimately, you know, you know, you're fired and he picks Rosen. God. But it's so sad. It's so pathetic. I mean, on the one hand, it is funny. And Barb, I could listen to you retell it all day long. 
But on the other hand, it's just profoundly awful that this man was sitting in the Oval Office and that that was what, you know, the the smart folks at DOJ had to do, what they had to stoop to to try and reach him. Uh. I agree with you, Joyce. And one of my favorite moments, though, was when Donahue's notes of his conversation were shown and it said, just say, which reminded me again of the many times that Donald has done it, just find me 11,780 votes or just say you're going to investigate Hunter Biden, as he said to Zelensky, and then I'll stop blackmailing you. I mean, this business where he says, you know, just say it and let the Republican congressman and me take it over. Just say you're investigating. You don't have to actually do it. That sort of synthesized for me the entire thing that's wrong with this entire plot to overturn our democracy and how much involved Donald Trump is in that plot. Well, after a very tough episode, we love getting to this part, which is questions from our listeners. If you have a question for us, please email them to us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet them using the hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye out on your Twitter feeds. We try as best as we can throughout the week to answer as many questions as possible. So our first question today comes from... Katie, uh, and Katie writes to Jill, Woodward and Bernstein recently revisited the past to answer Watergate questions. Jill, what is your assessment of their recent commentary? I think they are right on target. They've mostly been saying that this is worse than Watergate, something that I completely agree with. And they have pointed to reasons why, which we've all heard. So I I think it's right on target. And there's another question that I notice is also based on Nixon, which is whether the lying to the public, which was one of the things that was included in the roadmap we gave the impeachment committee, whether that is a criminal offense. It is impeachable. It is not criminal. To be criminal, you would have to be under oath. But it is impeachable to deceive the American public. Both very good questions. The next one is from Mary, uh, who asks, how would an unbiased jury possibly be seated in a Trump trial? Everyone is so dug into their opinions that it would be hard for a juror to disregard preconceived notions. I think that's a great question. What do you guys think, Barb? Yeah, I I think this is a very good question. And I think that uh, unlike any other case Ever, probably. People have such strong views about the former president, and certainly everybody's going to know who he was. Of course, the standard is not simply, you know, have you ever heard of this person or do you know anything about it? Everybody will have. The question is whether you can set them aside and decide the facts based on what you hear in court. And I've been surprised, having been involved in cases that have received a lot of local publicity, that you can always find jurors. Sometimes it's amazing how many people don't pay attention to politics, for example. They're busy with their lives. They're raising kids. They're working hard. They're working multiple jobs, whatever it is. And they pay only loose attention to it. And, you know, they're asked a series of questions by both sides to see if they have any biases or things that would make them unfit to serve as jurors. But I'm reasonably confident that they could find 12 people who, if they're honest um, and actually answer the questions, uh, can be fair and decide a case based on what they hear in court. And our next question is from Tom. Tom asks, can the presidential pardon privilege be ended? What would it take? Given that longstanding traditions have been tarnished by the Trump administration, I see far more possibility for abuse than good. What do you think, Joyce? This is a really great question, given everything that we're learning about pardons and everything that we saw Trump do with pardons during his presidency. But the short answer is this. The pardon power can't be altered by statute because it's created in the Constitution in Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1, which gives the president the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. 
So that means that presidential pardons uh, and also commutations of sentence, which the Supreme Court has found is included within that language, it applies only to federal crimes, and you cannot most definitively pardon someone who has been impeached. But within those limits, the president can operate. Tom, where where I would encourage you to do more reading is with your conclusion that there's more opportunity to do harm than good with the pardon power. And I understand how you get there because there are a lot of cases that are suggestive of abuse. We all heard Jared Kushner's testimony that was played during the committee hearings where he said he couldn't focus on what he characterized as the White House counsel whining because he was so busy getting pardons out. And, And one assumes we'll hear more about that. But pardons can be used to really achieve important criminal justice goals. For instance, when it came to light and came to a head in Congress, that the sentencing that was being done for cocaine differed greatly based on whether defendants possessed and trafficked in powder cocaine um, or or cocaine-based crack, that those sentences were very disparate and that that had a racially disparate impact. One of the mechanisms used to uh, redress that, in addition to some changes in the law, was using the pardon process to make sure that old, unduly lengthy sentences were fixed to come into compliance with the more modern view. So a lot of cases where pardons are used by White Houses to do very good things, uh, what we need is more oversight, more transparency, and less ability for pardons to be issued by the president's son-in-law inside of the White House, and more use of this traditional process where DOJ is involved and clear standards are applied that are uniform across pardon requests. Yeah, that is so important. I would love for us to do a, a look, take a look at clemency and the important role it plays in criminal justice, because uh, I think you're right on the money there. So the moment you have all been waiting for, the winners of the merch draw are... Samantha Sargent in Boston, T.G. Fagan in Los Angeles, and Don Fredericks in Atlanta. Yay! Hooray! And thank you to everyone who filled out our survey. And thank you to everyone for listening to this very special episode of Hashtag Sisters in Law. Remember, you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. And please support this week's sponsors, Thrive Cosmetics, Hair Eyewear, Blue Land, and HelloFresh. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review because it really helps other people find us. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. See you next week after the Supreme Court also decimates the EPA. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) One more. And makes makes Remain in Mexico a constitutional amendment. Mm -hmm. More nightmares to come. You won't break my soul. 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 I'm telling everybody. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh.